I, I want to talk a little bit today uh, about this word that you see up on the screen. This, this idea has been floating around in my head for a little while, and, and the word here is regeneration. And those of you who are fans of Marvel Comics, I did not just go all Wolverine on you, okay? Some of you will get that. Some of you will go, huh? That's okay. That's all right. So uh, regeneration, I'm, I'm not actually talking about, um, about comic books, at least not today. <laughs> anyway, if you do a quick survey of this particular word, uh, whether you're doing a dictionary or a thesaurus, you come up with some ideas here. Um, the first one is regrowth to replace loss. When we're talking about regenerating something, it's regrowth to replace, replace loss, or to rejuvenate, or renew, or restore. And you see kind of this theme that there's this idea of re, and of course the, the prefix in the English language means again. It means that there's a repeated thing. Again, there's that, that little prefix, re. So regrowth, regeneration, rejuvenate, renew, renew restore, those kinds of, um, kinds of things we see here uh, in, in this particular word. Now, in case you think that today's going to be all cerebral or intellectual or kind of a college lecture, I'm just going to ask you to suspend all that for a moment and just hang with me for a couple minutes, okay? I, I promise that this is going somewhere. <laughs> and, um, and I just kind of want you to think about this with me because over the last mm, probably 10 years of my career, this idea of regeneration, this, this word, has surfaced many times. And um, it's like I'm finally able to talk about it and beginning to be able to talk about it in ways that I think are meaningful. So this idea of re regeneration. As a designer, uh, one of the things that I want to do is to, to be regenerative in my design. And what that means for me is to to take whatever it is that I'm improving or creating and, and to make it beneficial to the rest of humanity. Does that make sense? That, that this actually is, is helpful to people. Whether it's a product or a service or an experience or even an organization that we're trying to, correct, um, trying to uh, create, the idea here is, is to make it regenerative, to make it something that's, that's beneficial and helpful and, 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 and beautiful as, as we kind of go along. As an environmentalist, too, I think in terms of regeneration of, um, to help the earth stay productive so it supports life, not just for me, but for future generations, too. And so things like soil and air and water um, are going to continue to deteriorate unless we do some kind of intervention. And that, that's just kind of from my own perspective. If, if you were here a few weeks ago, uh, I've got a pretty strong theology of creation care. And that comes out of my belief system and not just out of some ideology. But I, I want to see it regenerate because it's, it's important for not just for me, but the people around me. If love my neighbor as myself means anything, at the very minimum, it means recycling. <laughs> I'm just going to say that, okay? Now, as a theologian, uh, regeneration has certain ideas to it. Now, for those of you who are more theologically minded and cerebral and intellectual and stuff like that, then you, you need this. I'll just tell you, regeneration is a specific technical theological word that exists uh, between prevenient grace and justifying grace in the uh, Western Armenian construct of the order of salutis. <laughs> this is why we go to seminary, okay? So that we learn big words like that. But most importantly, or I should say, in other words, it means spiritual rebirth. 
It means something, something that happens. It's that moment of grace when God does something that only God can do uh, in our lives. And, and uh, if, if you've never heard this before, Jesus didn't come to make you better. Jesus came to make you new. That's regeneration. That's spiritual rebirth. Those are the kinds of things that, that we're talking about. And so, in short, when we, when we use this word regeneration, we're talking about something that's life-giving. I mean, truly giving of life. Um, and usually it means that you have life and then you get relifed, if that makes any sense. But in Christianity, this idea of regeneration, this idea of life-giving is truly comprehensive. And uh, there's a number of passages in the Gospels where we see Jesus doing this. And I want to just highlight one of them uh, today. So if you have a Bible, I'd um, invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, um, chapter 8, if you're there. So Matthew chapter 8. Remember, there's four different Gospels, these little biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the first book in the New Testament. It should be pretty easy to find, especially if you've got an iPhone or an app, because then you can just plug it in, right? Uh, I'm still trying to decide how I feel about the apps, because there's something about it when you come to church and you're carrying your Bible with you, and now we're kind of all over with us. Hey, as long as you're opening it, I guess I don't care, right? You can use whatever format works for you. So Matthew chapter 8, um, beginning with verse 1 through 4, this is the story of Jesus healing a leper. And we actually find the same story, or a similar story, both in Mark uh, chapter 1, but also in Luke chapter 17. And so I'm going to read through um, the first four verses of this, and, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more. So, Matthew 8, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This is the word of the Lord, and we believe it. Now, let me just point out a couple of things briefly. The first one, notice that it says, When Jesus came down from the mountainside. Now, uh, if you're going to read through the book of Matthew... Between chapters 5 and 7 is something we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, at least in Matthew, is kind of all of Jesus' seminal teachings put into one place, one easy package for us to understand. And we call it the Sermon on the Mount because he was on a mountain, right, exactly. He went up onto a mountainside, and when he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Now, it should be be clear as to what's happening here. So Jesus just went through all of these teachings up on a mountainside, and as he came down in chapter 8, we see him do three things. The first thing is he heals a leper. Second, he heals a Roman centurion's servant, okay, a Gentile, a non-Jew, actually does something for him. And then finally, at the end of chapter 8, it talks about how he healed many. So keep this in mind. Jesus taught, and then he followed it up with action. Okay? 
So here he is, giving this teaching, comes down the mountainside, and he's confronted by this leper. Now, first of all, you need to understand leprosy is kind of a generic term used in the um, New Testament to describe a whole host of, of uh, skin diseases. Um, but as we understand leprosy today, it was, at that time, a terrifying disease. It still is in many respects because of what it does to an individual uh, and not just physically, but also socially as well. Even in uh, developing nations today, leprosy is, is treated in a way that's very similar to what we find here in the New Testament. And it's highly contagious. So keep that in mind. So here this leper comes, and a large crowd was following Jesus. That's a big deal. And this leper is acting out of a great deal of faith that Jesus can do something for him. And notice what he says. He says, if you are willing. And Jesus what does he, how does he respond? I am willing. By the way, Jesus is still willing. I don't know if you know that, but he is. He's still willing today. I am willing, he says, be clean. Now, verse 4 is where things get really interesting here. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This is interesting because this is very, very Jewish. This is something that we find um, in the Old Testament, and uh, um, the same command appears in every single one of the leper accounts. So whenever we see Jesus healing a leper in any of the Gospels, we see this command. And we need a little context. We need a little context here. Jesus follows the law of Moses very uh, specifically, and, and what we're looking at is the book of Leviticus. Now let me ask you, what's the last time you read the book of Leviticus, right? We don't spend a whole lot of time in there because it has, basically it comes down to a very lengthy job description for priests, okay? And I mean, we're talking about details, everything that they're supposed to do. Some of them not so pleasant, which is why we avoid it uh, in many respects. So let's, let's take a brief look at this idea of leprosy and the Old Testament, the law of Moses and offer the gift Moses commanded. What does that all mean? Well, we find it in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. And so there's this whole process of diagnosis and prescription for leprosy and other skin diseases found in these two chapters of Leviticus. And um, those who are afflicted, we find in, in uh, chapter 13, the diagno uh, diagnostic process but right at the end of 13, here's the prescription. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. I want you to think about that for a moment because we, we read this and we read it in the context of history, but these were real people who actually had to live this way. And so not only did they have to, to deal with the physical aspects of their disease, which would you know, very realistically take parts of their body from them, but it's also taken from them uh, a certain amount of their social relationship. We call them leper colonies, right? And so all the lepers would gather and they would be outside of the camp. 
and from what I understand, this was very common among all ancient Near Eastern cultures. It was a completely necessary thing to do, but can you imagine how humiliating that would be? Wherever you went, you had to look a certain way and you had to telegraph to everyone around you that there was something wrong with you. That's rough. Think about how many times either we know someone or we've experienced ourselves where we want to hide the junk that we have, don't we? And this was a prescription where everybody had to do this and had to be out in front of, of everyone publicly. Now, what was interesting is that God made provision for people who might be healed. Provision for people who might um, get through the affliction and become, become whole. It either passes or they're, they're healed, which, by the way, was very unusual. And yet, isn't it fascinating that God still makes a provision for them? Isn't that cool? I'm not sure you find that in other ancient Near Eastern um, cultures where, you know, if you're a leper, once a leper, always a leper. And what, what God is saying here through Leviticus, no, 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 it's, it's possible that there might, you know, might come to pass where this is no longer an issue depending on what it is. And so there's actually a prescription for people who um, have been healed. And we find it in Leviticus 14, the first four verses. These are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing when they are brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. If they have been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that uh, two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. So imagine this. You've got this group of lepers who are outside of the camp, and word comes back that one of them is actually healed. Great story. So we send out a priest to double check. Makes sense. We don't want, you know, uh, you know, someone not having the right information about themselves come back into the camp and infect more people. This, this, is, this is just good practice. And then there's a whole series of, of rituals that they would have to go through because not only did they receive physical healing, but they were also ceremonial unclean. That means that they were unfit for worship. <laughs> unfit for worship. So the priest would go and examine them. And if he found them to be, uh, to be clean... They would go ahead and, and begin a series of rituals. Then look at this in verse 8. The person to be cleansed must wash their clothes, shave off all their hair, and bathe with water. Then they will be ceremonially clean. After this, they may come into the camp, but they must stay outside their tent for seven days. Again, another precaution. And then there was another series of rituals, and eventually where they were able to enter their own tent. That means enter their own house. Does that make sense? So we have these things that are happening here. They would be fully then integrated into the life of the camp once they had gone through these things. So remember, it's unusual that this would occur, and yet God makes provision for it, okay? So Jesus, <clears throat> at the end of his big sermon, encounters a leper, and he touches him. <laughs> touches him. That would have been dangerous in those days. It reminds me, uh, several years ago, I, um, I met a woman who was a nurse. Uh, she was, attended my church in Wisconsin, and she, uh, she worked the HIV ward in the 80s. 
And I remember asking her, I'm like, you know, there was so much misinformation. How did you? And she just put this smile on her face and she said, you know what? Because that's where Jesus would be. Wish I had that kind of strength. Jesus touches him. He's willing and he touches him. And then he tells him to go find a priest. Why? Why did Jesus tell this leper to go find a priest and offer? You see, I think what's happening here is that Jesus, at least for Jesus, healing is not just physical. For Jesus, healing is relational. To be fully and completely healed is not just about the physical ailment being gone or fixed or changed or whatever, but also that there is a relational component. Please understand, priests were necessary to readmit the afflicted back into community, back into this supportive environment. To be healed but not pronounced clean is not regenerative. Does that make sense? It's that black and white, I think. We need community. Each one of us needs community in order to be truly productive and whole. We are made for community, even those who are introverts. You know, I love you. But the point is, is that we're made for community. Now that, as an introvert, that might be a smaller group of people than, than other folks. But the point is, is that there is no way you can actually live this life successfully, whatever that means to you, without other people. You are not wired to be alone. None of us are. And so God makes provision for people who are excluded for one reason or another, whether you think it's legitimate or not, to re-enter back into the community. He allows for that. And in this case, we dramatically see how Jesus was life-giving fully, not just about taking the leprosy away, which is a big deal, but also make sure you go through the steps so that you can become part of your family again. And that's why, friends, when we talk about this idea of community and we talk about this idea of being reintegrated, why we're so proud of our graduates, because they're part of our community. Right? Does that make sense? That's why we're so proud of them. And what they do, and they go off to college, and we're proud of them for doing that too, and excited for them. And so I wonder, based on what we're, we're, what we're witnessing in the text here, what we're reading about, what, what might it mean to be a regenerative church? What would that mean? More to the point, how might Thrive be life-giving? And if the church isn't a place, if the church is a group of people, how might we as individuals be life-giving? Well, that got a little personal, didn't it? How might we do that? Now, the easy thing to say here, and of course we should do this, is we should pray for restoration, um, and we should pray for uh, uh, renewal and reconciliation of others, and you probably know somebody who needs that. That's what the Holy Spirit is nudging you about. Somebody just prayed that this morning. Thank you, Ms. Kay. The point is, is that you know someone who probably needs that idea of restoration, that idea of rebirth. 
They need a second shot. You know someone like that. And so maybe, maybe, just maybe, we start by being the community ready to accept those who are being healed and cleansed by Jesus. What do you think? Maybe we become the community who's ready to accept them. Because I'm not so sure we always are ready to accept those people. And the, and the reason why we want to do that is because, you know what, you and I were once in need of that too. Be the community you wish you had. Now, we could stop right there. We can all go home to lunch, right? And it would be okay. And like, oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, let's be that community. Yeah. But there's a challenge. <clears throat> there's a, a distinct challenge in what we just said. To be that kind of community. What? What is that challenge? What is the challenge? Why am I saying this? Why am I suggesting to you that there's more to it? And here it is. People are messy. You're laughing. You know, right? Yes, people are messy. Even church people. Maybe especially church people in some cases. Most of us are still in process, amen? If you're not, I think somebody's trying to sell you something. We still have habits and hang-ups that God is working on. Yes, even me. And at, at the same time, as a Jesus community, we don't get everything right. Certainly not all the time. We'll disappoint and we'll make mistakes. We will do that because people are messy. And that's why we need something called grace. <laughs> that's why we have something called grace. But I think we need to understand something else, that this idea of grace is rooted in love. Now, how many of you watched The Royal Wedding? How many of you have seen part of The Royal Wedding? And all of a sudden, David just made this right-hand turn, and everybody's like, what has this got to do with anything? Hang on, I'm getting there, okay? If you haven't seen it, besides all the pageantry, the Episcopalian bishop from Chicago brought some real thunder, right? <laughs> Holy cow. I have never seen a group of more white British people crack up ever. I mean, it was really something. And they're all stiff sitting in church like good church people do in the, in the Anglican church. And here's this, this beautiful African-American Bishop from Chicago talking about love. And it's something about it. It's not just love, it's love. You know what I'm saying? There's just a, I can't get away with it. I'm just not, I just don't have it. But you understand what I'm saying. And he's talking about this idea of, of love. And, and there were some real gems in there that I'm totally stealing for when I do weddings. So if I'm marrying you this summer, you know what's, what's coming. I'm just going to warn you. But the one thing that I heard that I just really deeply love, and I don't know if he was saying this himself or he was quoting um, someone else, but he said, love, do not underestimate it or over-sentimentalize it. 
Don't underestimate love, but also don't make it so overly sentimental that it loses all of its meaning. Because see, here's the thing about love. Love expands. That's why when, 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 when people are together and they're truly loving, more people want to be a part of that. Love is ever expansive. It keeps growing because there's always room for more. That's why when, when, when God, in his, in his uh, Trinitarian setup with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because of their love for themselves and each other, wanted to expand it and therefore created you and me so that we would be in community, we would be in a loving relationship with him. That's what this is all about. Love expands and it it fits more and it embraces those people that Jesus is in the process of healing. To be life-giving is to love. Everything that we read about in the text is grounded in love. And it took Jesus showing and touching the untouchable. Where does that come from? If it doesn't come from love, I don't know. I'm not sure it's possible, really possible, without some type of of love in our heart. It's all grounded in love. People are messy. The only anecdote is more love. Love.